From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, October 31st. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The death toll from Sandy rises here in the U.S. and in the Caribbean. We'll go to Haiti, where the storm also ruined crops. And we'll hear from a Haitian man in New York who says many of his fellow Haitians there never imagined such a disaster in America. Things like that are not supposed to happen here. These things happen in Haiti, not in Queens, not in Long Island. And later, testing a new edible food packaging on Parisians. Would they like it? Would they understand the product? Would they want to share it with friends? PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. President Barack Obama traveled to New Jersey today to view the devastation from Hurricane Sandy for himself. The president toured some of the worst-hit areas of the state with Governor Chris Christie. Meanwhile, the death toll from Sandy in the U.S. has risen to more than 60 people. Residents all over New Jersey and the New York City metro area are struggling to cope. Transportation networks remain crippled today, and millions of people are still without power in the region. Among those hard hit by Sandy are members of the Haitian community in the U.S. Many of them live in Queens, Brooklyn, and Long Island, New York, and throughout New Jersey. Rico Dupuis has heard from a lot of them. He hosts a program on Radio Soleil. That's a Haitian station broadcast from Brooklyn. He says that many Haitians in the area were hesitant to leave their homes despite calls from authorities. My view is that uh, a number of Haitians were not prepared for the storm. They, they did not heed the, uh, the advice. At least that's what some of them are telling me. For some reason, they, they felt it was like hype. There's also the, uh, the view that... Uh, it can be too bad in, in the United States. Uh, a number of them are telling me that they, you know, they have limited uh, food, no electricity, so they did not heed the, the advice that was being uh, provided on TV and through other outlets. Why not? Um, I would assume it's a combination of, of, of reasons. They feel comfortable being in the United States. I mean, it's here. It's the U.S. Things like that are not supposed to happen here. They know what they're doing. These things happen in Haiti, not in Queens, not in Long Island. I think you had that logic somewhere in the back of their mind. Some of these people, they, uh, they don't speak the language. For these reasons and others, I think they were ill-prepared. Is the community on solid ground sufficiently that they can help out those who didn't evacuate, who may be in trouble? At this time, uh, I, I'm not aware of any relief effort within the Haitian community itself. But you must understand also, at the same time, Haiti itself was seriously, seriously hit. Considering the fragility of structures in Haiti, uh, it doesn't take much to do a lot of devastation in Haiti. Well, actually, that's uh, interesting. We're going to be speaking to somebody who is in Haiti in just a minute or two, but it strikes me that there are a lot of Haitians who are probably in your listening audience, in fact, who send money back home to family in Haiti. Uh, is there any concern that they won't be in a position to do that now? That is the problem. Whenever things get bad in Haiti, so they depend on Haitians here. But Haitians here, they affect it. So they need all the support they need at this moment. And also, people in Haiti cannot reach a lot of them here because a lot of people here uh, 
have no electricity, no phone. So the people in Haiti that are trying to reach Haitians here to solicit help will find it very, very difficult to do so. Rico, what's it like to look at uh, some of the images around New Jersey, New York, that you have seen as a Haitian and um, to also presumably have seen images of flooding and, and devastation from Hurricane Sandy when it first hit parts of Haiti? It is heartbreaking, and, and I know how uh, tough it is for Haitian family here. Some, a lot of them are, are struggling. I remember there was a time in New York when it, it was easy to find a job, but that's not the situation here right now. Some Haitians just can't afford not to go to work. You have, for example, the uh, home health aid. You have a lot of Haitians in that field. They go and, and provide care to the elderly. If they don't work, they don't get paid. And some of them, have been, in fact, have been calling me uh, and telling them basically they cannot afford not to go to work. And that's what they have to do. They can't go to work. So that's tough. Rico Dupuis, who is the station manager at Radio Soleil, a Haitian station broadcast from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you very much. Haiti itself is still reeling from its early encounter with Sandy. There was widespread flooding and destruction there, and more than 50 people were killed. Kate Oswald directs programs in Haiti for Partners in Health. She's now in Port-au-Prince. Some of the images uh, in the south of Haiti that I'm seeing are very reminiscent of what we're seeing along the northeast coast of the U.S. in an area that is you know, if not one of the most developed areas in the world uh, on the east coast of the U.S. Even just the fact that the storm passed by Haiti and left four days worth of rain was enough to create serious crop loss and devastation for a number of families. In Haiti, you're saying even though you just got kind of the, the sidelines of Sandy, it still caused a lot of devastation. What are the differences in the kind of challenges that are faced right now? What What is going on there from what you've seen? What we're seeing is communities that are now cut off in many ways um, because bridges have been washed out or roads roads that were you know, just footpaths and such have been completely washed out through landslides and the such. When you're dealing with a, a rural population where the majority of the economy is focused on agriculture, the devastation around housing loss is not nearly as important as the impacts on the, the food supply for the country. And so our, a lot of our concerns are, of course, how can we get the tens of thousands of families that have been displaced by the high floodwaters or destruction from their houses uh, from the floodwaters to safety but and in and a, and a more long-term shelter, but also how can we continue to ensure that the food supply as we go into the dry season here in Haiti is sufficient to prevent further health problems? What are you seeing as you travel around the country? As you can imagine, um, we have a number of communities where housing conditions were small tin-roofed houses or banana-thatched roofs with some houses having cement floors and others just being dirt floors. And when you have floodwaters coming in, um, thatched roofs or even tin roofs with rock and mud um, type structures, they're easily destroyed by floodwaters. And so we have patients who their their one-room house is no longer there, completely gone. We have others whose 
fields, they're the banana plantations, the corn and sugarcane and, and anything that they were growing completely destroyed by the rising floodwaters when the riverbanks overflowed. Kate, you have family, friends in the area that was hit by uh, Hurricane Sandy here in the United States. I wonder, with all the work that you've done as the Partners in Health Organization Director of Programs in Haiti, if you're surprised that the same hurricane that struck the United States and earlier struck Haiti, or at least the outskirts of it struck Haiti, has yielded some comparisons in these two very, very different parts of the world. Oh, yeah. I, I was shocked to be following over the last few days to see what, you know, I always associate this level of devastation with, you know, with us here in Haiti, because it's just been one, it seems like it's been one disaster after the next, uh, these past six years that I've been here. And to to have it hit close to home and in, in such a destructive way made me just realize how in many ways, we're all connected. We're all we're all affected by um, nature and and weather patterns, and that we have to work together to be able to solve these problems globally. All right, Kate Oswald, the uh, Partners in Health Director of Programs in Haiti, speaking to us from Port-au-Prince. Thank you. Thank you. The recovery from disasters such as Sandy can last for years. A scandal is gripping Japan right now over the earthquake and the tsunami that devastated the country in March of last year. Japan set aside $239 billion. It was for reconstruction. But independent audits now show that much of that money has been diverted into pork barrel projects far away from the disaster zone. Hiroko Tabuchi has been covering the story for the New York Times. How much money are we talking about Well, we still haven't got the full accounting of the entire reconstruction budget, which, um, as you said, is nearly $239 billion. But an independent researcher who audited about half of that amount found that of of that half, a quarter had been diverted to projects that seemingly had nothing to do with reconstruction or were even spent in the disaster zone. Such Such as what? For example, um, there was money diverted to um, fix the Olympic Stadium in the middle of Tokyo. We also saw about 500 million yen or $6.3 million being spent to build roads in Okinawa, which is over a thousand miles from the disaster zone. Where else has the money gone? Well, one of the more controversial programs that the funds have been diverted to is Japan's whaling program. Um, Japan does uh, what it calls scientific Railing. So the government has diverted almost $30 million to help protect Japan's whaling fleet from environmentalists. And this has um, critics both within Japan and overseas asking how this has anything to do with the reconstruction. You know, let me ask you what the government's response is to these charges. And by the way, I imagine that people, especially in the, the disaster area, are pretty angry. Is that what you've heard? Yes, there has been a lot of public anger, especially in the disaster zone. So what does the government say in response? Um, The government has basically said that the disasters that um, Japan faced last year is a national crisis. And so Japan as a nation has to... um, yeah, it has to rebuild. And as you might know, Japan, over the last 20 years, its economy has been stagnating. And so from the government's point of view, it would like to not just kickstart growth again in the disaster zone, but also um, use some of that money to um, bolster the economy elsewhere. Kind of like a stimulus. Is, is, is that illegal in Japan, what's happening? 
No, it's actually not illegal. None of this spending is actually um, illegal because the government made the laws wording very vague. The, the law says that the funds can go to measures to basically revitalize Japan, and that can be um, interpreted in a very broad way. So none of this spending is technically illegal. However, some of the um, the projects that we've seen, um, I mean, the public, I don't think expected the projects to be this unrelated to reconstruction. Is there a reason for any donors from other countries, including the United States, to be concerned here? In any disaster, there's always a question of how much of the aid that often pours in from overseas is spent efficiently and is reaching the people who most need it. And in Japan's case, I I don't think there has been a comprehensive accounting of of all the aid that poured into Japan after the disasters. Uh, We'll see whether the anger over spending of Japanese taxpayers' dollars somehow sparks a call for better accounting of the aid that Japan received. We've yet to see that, though. Hiroko, I just wonder for those people in Japan who still have the memory of the earthquake and tsunami and nuclear disaster in their minds, is there any way that they're paying attention to Hurricane Sandy, what's happening here? Uh, yes, a lot of, actually a lot of the um, the images that we got from um, New York of all the water pouring in to the um, the subways and you know uh, over breakwaters, that kind of thing, I think it reminded a lot of Japanese of the tsunami coming in. And so, um, yeah, there has been a lot of uh, concern. I mean, I think Japanese are relieved that compared to the tsunami, the um, deaths and um, damage doesn't seem as big. But um, yeah, there was a lot of concern here. Hiroko Tabuchi of the New York Times speaking to us from Tokyo. Thanks. Thank you. You can find more of our coverage of Japan's disaster recovery, including reporter Sam Eaton's stories from inside the exclusion zone around the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant. That's at theworld.org. A bird bonanza thanks to Sandy, depending on how you look at it. That's coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Across the United States, there's a movement to reduce the use of plastic. Plastic bags at the supermarket, plastic bottles of water and soda. What if we move to a different kind of packaging? Well, a company based in the U.S. and in France has an idea to wrap food in edible packages. Continuing our weekly series with the PBS program Nova Science Now, reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro has the story. Let's start with something we're familiar with. An orange. David Edwards slices one open in a food research lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So there we go. Now look at that. Obviously the orange is full of water and moisture. Edwards is referring to the pulp, the part of the orange we eat. And then you've got the orange peel. The peel is kind of a durable, biodegradable packaging. Now, few people eat an orange peel, but it is edible. And, of course, we do eat the peels of other fruits, peaches, apples, for instance. The fact that they come in their own built-in packaging is convenient. It means fruit doesn't have to be sold in boxes or bags. And that's the inspiration behind a company Edwards has founded. He's an inventor, an engineer at Harvard University, and he wants to change the way we package and eat food. And this is where things start to get less familiar. Do you mind if I grab that? 
Edwards fetches a plate with what looks like a few red rubber balls. He picks one up between his thumb and forefinger. And uh, I'm going to bite into it just to kind of show you what's going on here. Edwards bites it in two and shows me the half still in his fingers. Greek yogurt sits inside. And I can kind of squeeze the yogurt out there. The innovative part is what's on the outside. So we have this right here, which I'm kind of holding up the raspberry skin. This skin is like the orange peel. It's a protective, biodegradable layer, and it's edible. That skin keeps moisture inside, and it keeps germs and other things outside. Edwards won't reveal the exact recipe, but he says in this case the raw ingredients come from raspberries and algae. And it's not just yogurt Edwards is wrapping in this kind of edible peel. Here's his vision. Imagine you're going to the supermarket. Instead of buying cartons of juice and cans of soup, you'll fill your cart up with balls of food and drink. I get home, and I hand it to my son, and he hands it to his friend, and then the friend says, but did you wash your hands? At that point, I clean it as I do fruit and vegetables today. I can run water over it, and it doesn't dissolve, actually, and it, it can be cleaned, and then I can eat it. It may sound like something from Star Trek, but Edwards is already trying these products out on the public. His company recently organized a tasting at its test kitchen in Paris. Just before the tasting began, I caught up with the company's R&D manager, Eloise Villaseca. She was eager to hear what the taste testers had to say. Would they like it? Would they understand the product? Would they want to share it with friends? Would they repeat the experience? It's just a small group of four volunteers who've come to try the new foods. Meva Tordo is one of them. She works in business innovation, and her eyes are wide with anticipation. I'm really, really curious about it because I always dream about being able to eat the cup of my yogurt, so I can't wait. Before long, the group is brought into a room where the food's been laid out. Wow. That's very pretty. It's a striking tableau. White spheres of frosty ice cream and brown orbs of mousse rest in shallow bowls. Yellow and green cheese marbles huddle on little plates. Those gelatinous balls of yogurt are out there, too. The taste testers pluck them up with their fingers and pop them into their mouths like grapes. They're loving it, <laughs> though someone does mention the ice cream could be improved by making it smaller. Perhaps the strangest things on the table are the beverages, colorful globes of liquid, orange juice in some, and a cocktail made with blue curacao in others. They're wrapped in a transparent spherical skin flecked with orange rind and placed in martini glasses. Cheers. Cheers. Chris Talek, a designer, pokes a straw through the skin of one of the turquoise cocktails and slurps the liquid inside. Then he holds up the skin, and he eats it. It's really tasty because it has the flavor of the orange around He's enjoying himself. He says it's a new way of eating. It's playful. Also, it's seducing. You know, you're curious about it. Meva Tordo's curiosity gets the better of her. Before she leaves, she reaches for just one more ball of yogurt. But the contents have warmed up to room temperature. So when she bites it in half to admire how it was created, the yogurt squirts out. He's <laughs> got yogurt everywhere. I mean, you have it in your hair. <laughs> That's what happens when you play too much with food. <laughs> it's one thing to try this at a small taste testing, but is the general public really ready to buy edible balls of soda or coffee at the grocery store and from vending machines? Is it realistic to think we can bundle much of our food into edible packaging? 
The product's inventor, David Edwards, thinks so. I'll just say that interest from leading multinational food and beverage companies has been great. Still, there's a lot to do before he licenses this technology to major food brands. He's got patent applications in the pipeline, and he has to make sure the technology can scale easily from a small test kitchen to mass production. And as Edwards continues to refine this new kind of food, he's relying on the public to tell him what works and what doesn't. In fact, he calls his company WikiCell Designs, as in Wikipedia, because as he sees it, it's a collaborative effort. A big step in that direction will happen early next year when the world's first wiki bar is scheduled to open in Paris, where consumers can directly purchase these balls of yogurt, mousse, and juice and offer feedback. If all goes well, Edwards hopes to roll out his products in the U.S. next year. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Paris. What's your appetite? Well, we've got photos from that taste testing in Paris. See what those cocktails and spheres of yogurt look like at theworld.org. And tonight on Nova Science Now, host David Pogue goes in search of unusual foods. Can I eat that? Tonight on PBS. Food and drink also figure in today's GeoQuiz because we're looking for an unusual dining establishment. You won't find it mentioned in any gourmet blog or Michelin guide. We're talking about an early medieval feasting hall. It was discovered by archaeologists in the southeastern corner of England. 1,300 years ago, Anglo-Saxons gathered here to party hard. Well, it would have been a pretty lively gathering, probably fueled by lots of mead, probably drunk from colourful and very prestigious glass vessels. We're going to hear more about what archaeologists turned up. First, take a crack at naming the English county that looks out on the streets of Dover and the English Channel. Now, my colleague Marco Werman is not far from that English county right now. He is on special assignment in London. I'm along the banks of the River Thames, but this will be one of the only times I see this river. Over the next few days, I'll be diving into a more global side of the city, speaking with people from around the world who live here and who are watching our election back home in the States. I think the president has to put some confidence onto the people that are working with the economy. Always the president will claim to be the leader of the free world. To to claim that mantle, you have to take that responsibility and, and you have to live it. People I'm meeting don't have a vote, but they have a lot to say about U.S. leadership in the world today. You'll be hearing Marco's reports from London starting tomorrow. Be sure to add your own voice to our conversation on the U.S. election. If you're on Twitter, just use the hashtag #TheWorldVotes. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, many young undocumented immigrants are being allowed to stay in the U.S., but they cannot get government-subsidized health care. People say that, that immigrants are draining the, the hospital system and, you know, in the emergency rooms, but we don't have preventative care, so where else are we supposed to go? PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Hurricane Sandy gave one group of people a reason to rejoice, bird watchers. That's because, as with most hurricanes, Sandy brought ashore rare birds from distant lands, species that American birders might never have the chance to see otherwise. Andrew Farnsworth, this applies to you, doesn't it? Absolutely. You are a longtime birder, in fact, and uh, you're a research associate at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You were joining us from your home in New York. Who would have thought that Manhattan is a good bird watching area, but especially now? What rare birds are you seeing around there? Well, yesterday, uh, as Sandy passed, we found a number of interesting things. Leeches, storm petrel, it's an oceanic species, Pomeran Jaeger, really not things that, that you would expect to see in Manhattan ever. Where do they come from? Well, leeches, storm petrel is a, a bird that breeds uh, across a lot of northern areas and some southern areas. It's an oceanic species, though, so you would never expect to see one in the Hudson. They're off the continental shelf usually. And Pomeran Jaeger is a, a high Arctic breeder that migrates off into the ocean. So again, you would really never expect to see one inland, uh, and especially not in Manhattan. Do they look exotic, like something you would not normally see in Manhattan, or you just happen to be really good at identifying different birds? The leech's storm petrel does look a bit exotic. It kind of looks like a a big, dark, very flappy kind of bat when it flies around and uh, looks pretty unusual. The the Jaeger looks a lot like uh, typical gulls you might see. So that's more of an ID challenge. But but they're both uh, pretty obvious when you look at them. So tell us about Ross's gull, uh, which is another bird that's been spotted. It's from the Arctic. How would something like Ross's gull have ended up in Manhattan? It was heading south. Sandy was traveling north. Yeah, so the Ross's gull actually was upstate in New York near Ithaca. It was maybe 200 miles from Manhattan. And um, it's a very interesting story because it's very rare anywhere in North America. We think it appeared because of the strong high pressure that made all of these northeasterly winds flow across the Atlantic into Canada and probably brought uh, that species and some other really rare shorebirds to Massachusetts, shorebirds called northern lapwing. And are there birds that have come up from the south? There are. There are. There was a report of a red-billed tropic bird, a Caribbean species, that was found alive on the ground in Cape May, New Jersey. It was brought into a rehabilitator. That's certainly uh, one of the farthest afield records that we've heard of. And pushed up by Sandy. That's right. So that's a good thing for you and for other bird watchers. Is it a bad thing for the birds to be steered off course so much? Well, a lot of the birds that get steered off course in hurricanes, if they can't fly back to the ocean, they may die where they end up. For something like Ross's gull, though, um, even though it's so far afield, it could easily survive. It could move on to another destination. It's hard to say for those. But the hurricane birds, they have a really tough time often once they get far inland and are far out of habitat and far out of range. A lot do return to the ocean. But the birds that are exhausted end up on lakes and and or ball fields or river valleys and are exhausted enough so that they're really not able to make the flight back. Do storms generally kill a lot of birds? A storm like this um, probably didn't kill a lot of migrant songbirds, maybe like an earlier storm might have done by forcing them into the ocean. Uh, This probably just displaced a lot of birds. So they can be really devastating, but hopefully this one was not. Okay. Andrew Farnsworth, longtime bird watcher and a research associate at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thanks again. All right. Thanks so much.
Now to another group that travels great distances, marathon runners. Thousands of them are facing an extra daunting task this week. They've got to travel through a disaster zone to run in the New York City Marathon this coming Sunday. Mayor Michael Bloomberg said today that the race will go on as planned. Nearly 20,000 amateur international athletes are scheduled to fly in for the race. We contacted three of those runners who are all trying to get to New York. The first is a very experienced athlete. He's hoping to run his 35th New York Marathon this weekend. My name is Runar Brandt Gundersen. I'm living in Norway in the city of Drammen. I'm supposed to fly from Oslo, Norway to Newark on Friday. This flight was cancelled the first time on Sunday, and then it's been cancelled each day, including today. I'm staying at uh, Hilton, New York, and I've been calling them all day, and uh, the phone isn't working. So uh, I need to know if the hotel is uh, okay, if it's open, and uh, things like that. It's not the race itself because uh, I'm not training that much anymore like I did some years ago. So it's everything surrounding. It's the runners, it's the volunteers, it's everything. And that's uh, what's very special with New York. And uh, not to mention the crowds, two million people cheering you on if you run two and a half hours or five hours. That's uh, amazing. My name is Karin Knebel and I live in Cologne, Germany. Yeah, the flights which were scheduled for this afternoon were, were cancelled and uh, Newark was closed, so I was a bit worried. But uh, at the moment, it looks like uh, our flight tomorrow afternoon is, uh, is leaving. It's my first marathon. I don't know if it's going to be my only marathon. And everyone said, well, it's the, it's the greatest marathon. So um, I just thought, well, if, if I only run one marathon in my life, it has to be New York. I mean, even if they would cancel the marathon, I would still go. New York needs the people and needs the business. My name is Dusan. I live in Prague, Czech Republic. I come from Slovakia. I was supposed to fly to New York uh, yesterday. It was the first flight yesterday. It was cancelled. And uh, today I had another flight. It was cancelled too. So now I'm supposed to fly to New York tomorrow. Uh, my words are that uh, how I can get from JFK to, to the downtown. Because I know the subway is not is not working now, so just I'm just a little worried uh, how to get from JFK to to Manhattan. But probably tomorrow it will be much better. We wish Dushan, Kari, and Runar all the best on their marathon journey. In just six days, Americans choose their next president, and one issue that hangs in the balance, the future of Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act was meant to give millions of Americans who are currently uninsured greater access to doctors and to hospitals. Well, in some parts of the world, if you don't have money or insurance, the problem isn't getting into the hospital, it's getting out. Journalist Cindy Shiner of the news site AllAfrica.com got a first-hand look at the problem in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She offers this reporter's notebook from the capital city, Kinshasa. I visited Kinshasa to report on the health of women and children, to find out what this African country is doing to keep mothers alive and to prevent their children from dying before they're even born. I went to the city's main hospital, Kinshasa General, my initial impression was positive. You see, I'd been to this hospital before, 20 years ago. It was just after massive looting sprees, and the wards were nearly vacant. <laughs> Things have clearly improved since then. The grass is cut, the floors are swept, windows have been repaired. And there are patients, 
In fact, on my recent visit, the benches in the hospital's outdoor corridors were full. I went through the maternity ward. A new mother cradled her healthy child. The baby squirmed in her lap while trying to nurse as the woman rocked back and forth to get the infant settled. I walked to another room. All of these women, at least six, had lost their children in childbirth. And it was here that a nurse, Kavita Masenga, said something that brought me up short. Generally, these women stay here more or less a week. But if they don't have the means to pay the hospital bill, they stay a little longer. That's right. If they can't pay, they stay longer. You see, patients can't leave the hospital until they settle their bills, which means some of them can end up staying for a long time. That was the case for a 23-year-old named Lorette. Bonjour. When I met her, she said she had been at the hospital for more than three weeks. The reason? It's expensive, she said, and she doesn't have enough money to pay her bill. She gave birth to a stillborn child and then became a virtual prisoner of her poverty. Mentally disabled, unable to even read to pass the time, she sat in a ward closed behind a blue iron gate, waiting. Lorette said her mother was working to earn money to help get her out of the hospital, but there seemed to be little incentive for her family to help her. Lorette doesn't have a job. In poverty-stricken Kinshasa, she's a drain rather than a resource for her family. And her problem would only worsen the longer she stayed. Each day she remained in the hospital, another $10 would be added to her bill. She already owed more than $200 when I met her, about what the average Congolese makes in an entire year. Eventually, the medical workers would have to discharge Lorette, if only to make room for other patients who can't pay. Her family would presumably end up paying whatever they could manage. But sometimes it's not that easy. Families will enlist the help of a policeman or a soldier to exert pressure and negotiate a patient's release. The broader problem, though, is the system that both the patients and doctors find themselves in. At public hospitals here, patients are supposed to receive medical care at a greatly reduced cost. The government is supposed to pay doctors' monthly salaries, except it often doesn't. So the only way the doctors can continue to practice, and buy medicine, is to charge higher fees to patients. And the doctors say the only way to ensure that patients pay is not to discharge them until they settle their bills. It's an ad hoc system implemented all across Africa, and it leaves patients like Lorette with few options. The more I spoke to Lorette, the more I realized that she was attempting a new solution, she wanted me to pay her bill. As a reporter in Africa, these judgment calls come up all the time. I wanted to help, but if I paid her bill, the next time a Western reporter visited the hospital, there would be that expectation. At some point, fees could be demanded of reporters up front. The best I could do was to tell Lorette's story. For The World, I'm Cindy Shiner, Kinshasa. Cindy Shiner is an editor at allafrica.com. We've got a link to her stories from Kinshasa at theworld.org. And as for the patient, Lorette, we believe she has now left the hospital. We will provide an update when we have it online. Among the millions of Americans who lack access to health care coverage are illegal immigrants, even those who have a legal right to be here for now. This could be an issue in the presidential race, but it's not. The world's Jason Margolis explains from Las Vegas. 
President Obama made a shrewd political move this summer, one that resonated with many Latinos, both citizens and those living here illegally. The president signed an executive order that gives young, undocumented immigrants the chance to live and work openly in the U.S. without fear of deportation. It wasn't everything they were hoping for, though. For example, they have to apply to renew the deferment every two years. And in the days after the much-publicized announcement, one provision got far less notice. Those young immigrants are not eligible for health care coverage under President Obama's Affordable Care Act. The Romney campaign wants Latinos to understand that the president didn't give them such a good deal after all. It's breadcrumbs. Elsa Barnhill is the director of Hispanic Outreach for the Romney campaign in Nevada. So it was something that was done very close to the elections, literally months before the elections. He did it without Congress, and he did it almost in a very obvious way to to do something. Latinos in Nevada are being reminded of that often. Here's a commercial from a pro-Romney super PAC. Don't be fooled by President Obama's words. He's not committed to immigrants. He only wants our vote. With the election on the line, he offers our undocumented youth a temporary solution that still cheats them of legal status. I met with three young undocumented immigrants in Las Vegas, Astrid Silva, Rafael Lopez, and Blanca Gomez. They were all born in Mexico. Rafael and Blanca came to the U.S. before they could walk. Astrid was four. All three of them say a huge burden was lifted off their shoulders when the president signed his executive order. Here's Blanca. That morning I woke up to messages upon messages and Facebook and Twitter and text messages and voicemails. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> basically, I, everybody was like, your life's about to change. But the three students still don't have health insurance. I asked Astrid, then Rafael and Blanca, if they were bothered that they're still excluded from coverage. I'm more bothered by the fact that people say that, that immigrants are draining the, the hospital system and, you know, in the emergency rooms, but we don't have preventative care, so where else are we supposed to go? I am actually bothered by it because I, I think health care is a human right. I guess what bothers me is that even though we only are receiving work permits, what I don't want is, you know, a second class of, you know, of immigrants, you know, being created. So you're the tiebreaker. Are you, are you bothered or not? Honestly, right now it's baby steps. Like, I see it in the future happening, but at this moment, I'm not, like, personally, I'm not bothered by it because I'm like, I've lived all my life here without it. It's still not going to make a difference right now to me. And that's why I'm like, it's just baby steps, little by little. Astrid added they're confident that young undocumented immigrants will eventually get help with health care coverage. Slowly with time is going to happen because, you know, the original, what it's called the Romney Care, included undocumented immigrants. So it is something that hopefully with time it will uh, include us. She's referring to the Massachusetts health care reform law signed by then-Governor Romney. That could be a strong political card for Romney to play with Latino voters, if he wanted to, that is. The Los Angeles Times reported last year that illegal immigrants in Massachusetts are eligible for publicly subsidized medical care. Romney's campaign issued a statement after the article came out, essentially saying Governor Romney had nothing to do with that. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Stay tuned. Our GeoQuiz answer and our global hit are on the way on PRI. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Now for the answer to our geo-quiz today, we need to consult an archaeologist. Gabor Thomas is from the University of Reading in Britain. He recently found what once was a medieval feasting hall under a village green in southeast England. Right, it's a village green next to the village pub, the Coach and Horses. The town is Liminge. It's a village about five miles from the south coast. This is in Kent, England. Tell us about this discovery and how far back it dates. We found a large timber hall. The feasting hall dates back to either the very end of the 6th century or first half of the 7th, at a time when the region of Kent was the most powerful of the kingdoms in in Anglo-Saxon England. So it's an absolutely key region in terms of our understanding of Anglo-Saxon society. And what does it look like, what you found underground? Well, you've got to remember that the architecture of this period was all, was all wooden, it was all timber, so that's long since disappeared. Sometimes you can see preserved detail of where the timbers rotted, um, so you can reconstruct the shape of the planks, the timber planks that formed the walls. It was about 21 metres long and eight and a half metres wide with opposed entrances. About 69 feet by roughly 28 feet. It could hold 60 people or so. But how did you know it was a feasting hall? Okay, well, there is artefactual evidence that helps us to make that assertion. Key being lots of fragments of luxury vessel glass suggests that, you know, there were prestigious celebrations involving the consumption of perhaps wine and mead drunk from these kind of vessels. You know, this isn't sort of daily meals we're talking about here, but we're talking about grand feasting events. And what were the other clues? Um, We've also found a very um, nicely decorated bridal fitting. This is a type of object that would have embellished horses that were integral really to the life of Anglo-Saxon aristocrats. When the joint was jumping, what would it be like? I mean, got to envisage the consumption of alcohol, feasting in terms of kind of rich foods, things like suckling pig, perhaps consumption of wild animals such as deer. One can very well imagine poetry like, heroic poetry like Beowulf being recited It was probably a place or these are kind of gatherings where royal gifts were bestowed on retainers to reinforce kinship. Royal gifts like what? Rings. Beowulf and other contemporary sources tell us that the giving and receiving of rings, gold rings, neck rings, appears again and again. Would they have uh, music makers there? Music almost certainly. I mean, we know from burials that... You know, lyres, for example, would have been played as part of the sort of aristocratic gatherings. So almost certainly music would have been played alongside the poetry. So we're talking fairly proper affairs, not necessarily body or bacchanalia-ish. Well, I mean, who's to say that that kind of uh, that things didn't descend to that level? That's pure speculation. All I can say as an archaeologist that I have discovered an architectural space that would have framed those kind of activities 1,500 years ago. Archaeologist Gabber Thomas from the University of Reading telling us about the Anglo-Saxon feasting hall that's been discovered in Liminge in the county of Kent, England, which is the answer to our geoquiz. In Egypt, the heavy metal music scene is devout 
but tiny. That's understandable. The genre has a dark past there. Egyptian metal musicians and a lot of fans were arrested in the 1990s. They were accused of Satanism. Those accusations resurfaced after a concert not too long ago in Cairo. And it's got a new crop of young metalheads wondering where they stand in the new Egypt. Noel King has this report. Studio time is expensive, band practice is off to a rocky start, and Wael Osama, who fronts the Egyptian heavy metal band Enraged, is frustrated. The bassist gave up before the song even tries. Be sure he doesn't care. is a tight-knit group. Bishoy Bashara is the band's bassist. The band's singer, Rasha Magdi Syed, is Wiles wife. She's a teacher and her colleagues still can't believe she plays heavy metal. In my work, everyone, when they know that I'm in a metal band, they're like, oh, but you're so nice. <laughs> and I'm like, do I have to be an evil person or like a depressed person to love metal? The metal scene in Egypt is tiny, says Bashara, and so metal fans think of themselves a bit differently from other music lovers. We're so tiny and we're so irrelevant that actually the fans sometimes, even if they don't feel like coming to a concert or they're tired or something, they just go to show support. There's a reason the scene is so small. Fifteen years ago, young Egyptian metal musicians and their fans were arrested and accused of Satanism. They were accused of participating in orgies and unearthing corpses. At the time, Amr Hefni played in a band called Severed. He remembers his terrified mother waking him at 4 a.m. to tell him the police wanted to talk to him. I went from my room outside. It was something I, I've never seen. I've never seen these people before. They were like SWAT teams in the USA. And they're starting tearing everything apart. So I was always asking, What's, what do you want? Just tell me. And then he turned to me and said, Amr, do you listen to black metal? Amr spent a month in jail. In the end, there was no evidence of satanic behavior, nothing more than a few Metallica posters and Guns N' Roses tapes confiscated from bedrooms. But Egypt's metalheads went underground, while Osama remembers playing on farms far outside of Cairo. You're looking at the audience, you're just about to get into the solo, and you're putting your heart and soul into it, and then you look into the audience, and right in your eye, a cow is staring at you. In the mid-2000s, metal started making something of a comeback. Then, last month, a popular music venue called El Sawi Culture Wheel, well known for its emphasis on good, clean fun, hosted a metal concert. Afterward, a lawyer for the Muslim Brotherhood's political wing filed a complaint with the Egyptian Interior Ministry. He claimed Satanist rituals were held at the concert. Most of the young musicians have chosen to handle accusations like these with a sense of humor. But they're divided over what the new Egypt means for metal. And, says guitarist Mohammed Akram of the band Origin, these days metal musicians have some powerful allies. What do your parents think about you playing in a metal band? Okay, you kind of missed the point that our parents were there at the last concert, uh, and the one before it, and the one before it, and, you know, they don't miss a single concert of ours. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Origin, has the most supportive parents in the whole world. The 
Sawi Culture Wheel in a statement to local papers disavowed the accusations. The Muslim Brotherhood lawyer has dropped the charges. The Brotherhood publicly reprimanded him. None of the young musicians have been questioned by the police, much less sent to prison. And that may be the best possible evidence that 15 years on, Egypt's heavy metal musicians are finally starting to get a little bit of respect. For The World, I'm Noelle King in Cairo. And that's all the headbanging we have time for today. Get videos and pics at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.